Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics. I'm Major Alan Abrams, and I'm a defense counsel in the Air Force's Trial Defense Division. I'm sitting in for our normal host, Daryl Johnson, who's out hitting the Rocky Road for the 4th of July weekend. It's episode 24, but before we get to it, I'll note, like we always do, that this podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law in their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial. The ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the United States government, Department of Defense, Department of the Air Force, or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interest of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. For this week's episode, we're going to be skipping past our usual stop at the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces and going straight to the Supreme Court. As of June 28th, 2022, when we put together this episode, the last CAF decision was published on June 1st, 2022, a little while back. The applicability for trial practitioners of that decision, United States versus Batters, is limited and pretty much captured in the first sentence of the opinion, which reads, We hold that when a military judge declares a mistrial, the government may appeal that ruling to a service court of criminal appeals under Article 62A1A. That's it. So instead of diving into the CAF case this week, or any real CAF case this week, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court's June 23rd decision in Vega versus Tico, which asked whether the rights under Miranda versus Arizona are constitutional rights. For our trial skills segment, we'll start a two-part discussion about prior consistent statements. The Vega case was not a criminal case, but it stemmed from one. After a complaint by an alleged victim, the respondent, Mr. Tico, was questioned by law enforcement without being advised of his Miranda rights to counsel and to remain silent. Q, the confession. The confession was admitted against Mr. Tico in his criminal trials, the first ending in a mistrial and the second ending in an acquittal. From there, Mr. Tico filed a claim under 42 U.S.C. section 1983, which essentially allows for civil suits against anyone acting under state law who deprives someone of rights, quote, secured by the Constitution and laws, end quote. In a 6-3 decision, the Supreme Court determined that a violation of Miranda rights does not constitute a deprivation of someone's rights secured by the Constitution or any other laws. We're not going to get too in the weeds on the court's reasoning. Essentially, the majority says that Miranda rights have always been prophylactic to protect the Fifth Amendment right against compelled self-incrimination and are, quote, constitutionally based, but are not actually constitutional rights. It reads a lot like Justice Scalia's dissent in Dickerson v. United States, a 2000 case where the Supreme Court majority labeled Miranda rights as constitutional. So basically the opposite conclusion. It flipped. In terms of a takeaway for military justice trial practitioners, this case is pretty limited application. The big thing is, to the extent that you would seek to discuss Miranda rights as a constitutional right in, say, motions practice, it's worth rethinking whether it would be better to describe Miranda as constitutionally based guarantees as opposed to just constitutional rights. The Supreme Court's decision weakens the teeth that otherwise might accompany Miranda rights and provide an incentive for compliance with those rights by law enforcement, but it does not appear to change those rights as they would apply to civilians, nor does it change the applicability of the same to the military through the statute that predates the Miranda decision, Article 31 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Turning to our trial skills segment, we're going to take up our first part of our two-part discussion about prior consistent statements. We did a five-parter on prior inconsistent statements before. There's a lot that goes into that, but for prior inconsistent statements, it should just be a two-parter. Prior consistent statements are hearsay exception. They're governed by Military Rule of Evidence 801 D1B. The exception permits the introduction of a prior out-of-court statement by declarant. 
but there are some boxes that must be checked first. As we go through these, we're going to essentially synthesize the plain text of the rule and some court of appeals for the armed forces decisions, in particular, the relatively recent decisions of United States versus Finch, 79 MJ 389, and United States versus Frost, 79 MJ 104. So step one is that you're seeking to admit a portion of the statement that is generally consistent with the declarant's testimony. Could a portion be the whole thing? Yes, but it does need to be narrowly tailored to track with step two, which is making sure that one of the following conditions is met. Condition one, the statement occurred earlier in time then, and therefore rebuts at least one express or implied allegation raised by the other party of recent fabrication. Condition two, the statement occurred earlier in time then, and therefore rebuts at least one express or implied allegation raised by the other party of recent improper influence or motive. Condition three, the declarant's credibility is attacked on some other ground besides what we just listed, and the statement rebuts that line of attack as a means to repair the credibility of the witness. We picked our words pretty carefully there in summing that up, and this episode isn't going to be too focused on the black letter law. That said, I'll make a quick detour to a recent Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals unpublished decision, United States versus Emus. Again, it's unpublished, so it's only persuasive authority, but it has some conclusory analysis about prior consistent statements offered when credibility is attacked on other ground that could impact the arguments practitioners see at trial, particularly by prosecutors. In Emus, the alleged victim made two statements before trial that were relevant for purposes of our discussion about prior consistent statements. So you've got statement number one, and that was to a nurse. Then there was statement number two, which was to law enforcement. At trial, the defense impeached the alleged victim based on prior inconsistent statements about the charged conduct made in statement number one to the nurse, so that first statement. If the Air Force Court said it was fine to rehabilitate the alleged victim's credibility using the later statement number two to law enforcement, I wish I understood how, but the court statement on how it rehabilitated the named victim's credibility was limited to saying that the evidence rehabilitated the alleged victim's credibility. I don't quite follow how the later statement to law enforcement would rebut the defense's line of attack based on an earlier inconsistent statement to the nurse, and the court's conclusion seems entirely divorced from the defense's theory of the case, which the court actually described, that theory being that the alleged victim made a false report to hide, quote, her inappropriate actions of drinking and hanging out with the appellant who was junior in rank, end quote. Bottom line, if a prior consistent statement does not serve a rehabilitative purpose, it's improper and it's worth fighting. All right, so we've got that background out of the way. Let's focus on the mechanics and considerations that go into prepping and executing a prior consistent statement. There are five topics that we're going to cover across these two episodes. The first is we're going to talk about how you get organized to identify prior consistent statements. Second, we'll talk about who you call to help you introduce the prior consistent statement. Our discussion this episode, again, will be limited to these first two topics only. Starting with our next episode, we'll pick up with third, prep of the witness. Fourth, we'll cover what your options are if getting the statement in through the witness you had in mind doesn't actually work. And fifth, we'll actually walk through the actual presentation of the statement at trial. So let's take up identifying prior consistent statements first. This is just your basic prep stuff. Again, this is really the bread and butter of case prep, but that doesn't make it any easier. Of course, you'll be pouring over all the recorded statements available to you, the medical records, the police reports, written declarations, video recorded testimony statements, audio recorded statements, text messages, motions, testimony, all of that. On top of that, you'll be talking to witnesses about what the key players in your case said. 
So you'll be asking about what other witnesses have said. You'll be asking about especially what accusers may have said. And probably also, if you're the defense counsel, your client, what have they said? With all of these witnesses, you're going to be trying to identify what was said and just as importantly, when it was said and making sure to distinguish between separate occasions. Make sure your note taker keeps track of the questions you ask in addition to the answer. What you're going to do with those statements is pretty similar to how you're going to deal with prior inconsistent statements. After all, you can't have a prior consistent statement without its inconsistency counterpart. The inconsistency is what opens the door to the prior consistent statement. So first things first, you're going to want to make a timeline. You could organize the writings you have in chronological order. You can just make a running list for each witness. You could list them out in order on the trial plan. You could list them out in order on a cover sheet that sits on top of your examination questions, potentially even with the nuts and bolts that you need for foundation, such as date, where the statement was made, who was present, when exactly in the day it was made, anything like that. It's up to you other than you need to know the chronology. Next, you're going to be drilling down into the weeds on these prior statements and breaking them down. Some will be pretty obvious and will be the cornerstones of your case. Others will be less glaring and may not be apparent to you until you really work through them as you're working together on your final iteration of questions, pretty much on the eve of trial. As we've talked about in prior episodes, that drilling down into these statements can be a lot of work. Video recorded and audio recorded statements such as law enforcement interviews or audio of in-court testimony can be especially cumbersome because you want to have specific portions ready for use as prior consistent statements, maybe even prior inconsistent statements. And you're going to have limited time when you actually get to trial. So Air Force Defense Council may want to request funding through Daryl Johnson for transcription with time hacks at short intervals or put together something like that on your own. And what are you breaking all these statements, prior statements down for? Remember, prior consistent statements are introduced through witnesses that you call, basically. So your starting point is likely your list of things that you want to go through on direct examination with this witness. Then compare it to the earlier statements. If the same topic was covered, was it generally the same? Was it different? Was it not covered? And if it was not covered, was that not being covered an inconsistency in the form of of an omission? For any differences that you see, ask A, is there something earlier that matches what will come out at trial? And B, why is there a difference? That last question is important because as the rules we walked through earlier highlight, you need a reason why you're getting into the prior consistent statement. It's not good enough that there just is a prior consistent statement. It has to serve some sort of purpose of rehabilitating the witnesses. So maybe the Intervening inconsistency will be argued to show the witness is a flip-flopper, has a bad memory, or has a recent motive. Those are your gateways for getting into a prior consistent statement. One other consideration at this early stage we've been talking about is how much prep you want to do to have the prior consistent statements pretty much ready to roll prior to trial. Let me give a concrete example of what I mean. So when I was doing trial work, I would write out all of my questions for cross-examination, listing out the sources for prior statements below each question. And my practice for direct examination is a bit different. I basically write out just a bullet list of the points that I really want to hit and still annotating what the source is, but it's really just a list of points that I need. I don't need to write out the whole set of questions. And I do that because unless the question that I'm trying to drive at really requires some key precision, which is ordinarily less the case, at least for me, on direct examination. Writing it that way helps with me keeping it conversational, at least style-wise, with the witness. But it's easy to make a sub-bullet 
if you're doing preps in that sort of fashion, or it'd be easy for me to make a sub bullet if we're talking about my prep for to be prepared so that if the other side impeaches on, say, point X, then use prior consistent statement Y, and then you can have the time hacks and or the actual statement ready to go from there, at which point you're just basically, I don't know, highlighting your piece of paper and getting up there and asking it. Now, let's turn to the sort of the Ghostbusters second question of all this, which is who are you going to call? Who will be your witness to introduce the prior consistent statement? Keep in mind, there aren't really any confrontation clause issues at this point because the declarant has to have already been called as a witness subject to cross-examination and called out for a prior inconsistent statement before you even get to the prior consistent statement step. The fundamental question at this stage is who is going to be able to credibly introduce the prior consistent statement? One option, though it may be one you don't always use, is the actual witness in question. So, for example, remember the Emus case we talked about a little while ago? In that case, you had the alleged victim with prior statement number one to the nurse, which was verbal, then documented in medical records, and prior statement number two to law enforcement, which was video recorded. If the door was opened to a prior consistent statement, you could ask the alleged victim what she told the nurse or law enforcement in those prior statements. But there are risks in doing that. The alleged victim in this instance is the person who's just been impeached, right? They've been hit with the prior inconsistent statement. So do you really want their credibility to be further at issue where it's, they've got all these different statements back and forth and they're having to maybe remember these prior statements? Plus, this would, in that same vein, seem to be asking the alleged victim to remember quite a bit. More likely in this fact pattern, just the nurse or law enforcement would be the better option. Here are some rules of thumb, though, as we're going through this. Emphasis being that these are rules of thumb and need to yield to the facts of your case, as well as its cast of witnesses, some of whom will have better memories and different credibility issues than others, for getting to the right mechanism to introduce the prior consistent statement. If the prior statement is video recorded or audio recorded, such as by law enforcement, the rule of thumb would be whoever was present for and created the recording is going to be your best witness. So if it's a statement, say to law enforcement, call in the agent. Ask him or her to authenticate basically just the clip of what it was. Understand, by the way, that under case law, the military judge has an obligation to review the evidence before admitting it. And understand that if that clip has some stuff on it that you need to skip, you may want to have the agent, for example, testify to it and use the clip only to refresh his or her recollection as needed for purposes of introducing the prior statement. We go this route for these sorts of prior statements because the third party who made the recording is ordinarily more disinterested Plus, using the recording itself helps mitigate the difficulty of remembering exactly what the prior words were. It's also more powerful to hear the prior statement with natural demeanor and without the filter of people trying to look or sound good in court. It's that same sort of thing that we often want to do with prior inconsistent statements. We're really highlighting, here's the person in the moment with their statement. Well, for prior consistent statements, you can do that because it's substantive evidence. Now, if the prior statement is written. Again, we're talking about the prior consistent statement. The rule of thumb would be to default to whoever created the writing. So if we're talking about a statement to a medical provider, for example, the medical provider could refer to his or her notes or medical records to refresh their recollection or alternatively authenticate the records for publication so the fact finder can see the statement for themselves. That would make a lot more sense than the witness at issue, such as an alleged victim. The same goes for verbal statements to law enforcement that are not audio or video recorded, but are documented. 
Now, a grayer area would be if the prior written statement was created by the witness at issue, such as a text message or a sworn written statement. You can certainly default to them and using that witness to prove up their own prior consistent statement may be pretty powerful in making the side that used the prior inconsistent statement appear to be playing games with pointing out a prior inconsistent statement that is really just, I don't know, an illusion. After all, things in writing are like they're set in stone, at least when they're written clearly. But it would be perfectly appropriate to use also whoever they gave that statement to, such as law enforcement, as an avenue for introducing the prior consistent statement in this instance. And that's because their credibility as a third party is likely less called into question. Now, if the prior statement is verbal only, default to whoever heard the statement. That may not always be possible. The third party who heard this prior statement may remember it differently than the declarant slash witness at issue, in which case you'd be boxed in to the witness at issue. That's it for this week's episode, and we'll plan to close the loop on prior consistent statements in our next episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope this was helpful. Check in with Guinness in a couple weeks when we wrap up our discussion on prior consistent statements and get to the next round of legal updates. Until then, any ideas, comments, suggestions you have are always welcome. Heck, if you want to join us in putting this podcast together, that's welcome. You can email me at allen.abrams.1 at us.af.mil. That's A-L-L-E-N dot A-B-R-A-M-S dot one at us.af.mil. Or you can email Daryl Johnson at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for all you do. I wish you the best luck litigating your cases, and for those listening around the 4th of July holiday, best wishes for the holiday weekend.